Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Christine B. was recorded on June 9th, 2022. Hi, everybody. It's so cool to be with you. And uh, shout out to Gretchen. Gretchen and I do some service together, which is really exciting to see her on the screen. I actually didn't expect that. So nice little bonus for me. Um, so uh, my name is Christine. I am an adult child, and uh, just a little bit of background, I came into the program, I started reading the Big Red Book with um, two other women, one of whom was in 12-step recovery and one of whom wasn't, the other one was a therapist, and um, I learned about it at uh, an AA women's retreat, and the retreat leader read, eventually I came to realize that I don't know where she got what she was reading because it's actually not our version of anything, but she basically kind of introduced the laundry list and talked about the concept of being an adult child. And the minute she said it, um, I, I just knew that I needed to know more. So I went out and bought the Big Red book and, um, and I started reading it, as I say, with uh, two other people, uh, which is a daunting task. If any of you have tried to do this on your own, you know it's it's extremely difficult to um, it's extremely difficult to recover without you know real support, and so um, after about a year of that, um, one of the women and I decided that we would start a meeting. And so um, eight years ago, last January, we started a meeting in West Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, it's a women's meeting on Tuesday nights, and um, the meeting is on Zoom. So if you are a woman or identify as a woman and you would like to come, um, I can certainly get you. The Zoom information, it's, it's on the WSO website as well. It's the uh, West Hartford Women's Meeting on Tuesday nights at 6.30. And uh, we've experimented with um, having a hybrid meeting. We, it, it's taken some time to get the, uh, the technology working the way we think it works best. Um, and actually, that, that involves uh, putting the Zoom on a phone and handing the phone around to whoever's speaking because um, we want to make sure that everyone can be heard. And I think so much of, um, of the nature of recovery in this program is being able to be heard. So when you're at a meeting and you can't be heard or you can't hear other people, it is, I think, doubly jarring because of the nature of our disease. So really happy about that meeting. And that is my home group. And then um, a couple of years ago, uh, not this past um, World Convention, but the one before, um, there were a couple of programs on boundaries and, um, and the year prior to that, there had been a proposal put before the, um, the annual business conference to uh, write materials on boundaries and a boundaries committee got put together and it worked for a while and then it, um, it kind of fell apart. And that is actually not that uncommon in, in world service. Um, and it's not necessarily a problem. We just wait for the next opportunity. Um, but I felt after I heard that conference, which was a year ago, 
on boundaries. And I saw all the people from all over the world who were interested in more boundary work. I felt a call to start a meeting on boundaries. And, um, and so I did. Um, and with my higher powers help, we, we put together some of the materials that had been used in that, um, in that world conference um, presentation. And actually we added um, other materials that had come from a Connecticut um, intergroup workshop on boundaries, which uh, I had participated in. So I, I knew where the materials were. And uh, that format is now up on the website, adultchildren.org, under what, what we call member shared resources, which means anybody can use it. It's a format that anybody can use to start a boundaries meeting if they so desire. And since we started this first boundaries meeting, which was probably last September, um, another participant in the meeting has started a Thursday night meeting. Our meeting is Wednesdays at 11 uh, Eastern time. She started a Thursday night meeting and then another member started a Saturday during the day women's meeting. And then we did a meeting at the World Convention at 11.30 at night. The goal was to be able to include people in Australia. And the leader of that uh, boundaries meeting decided she wanted to keep going. And so now we have a Saturday night at 11.30 boundaries meeting um, that is doing outreach to our global community. And I say this only because it was just something I felt a call to do. And, uh, and now I get to step out of the picture and let other people take it over and let it grow the way it's going to grow and make those resources available on our website. And I, I, I'm so just so grateful that, because um, you know, there was a part of me that went, oh, I really don't want to do this. This is going to be a lot of work. And what if it doesn't work? And you know, all those things that we say as adult children, all those doubts that we have. And um, I'm so grateful. We have on our Wednesday meeting at 11 in the morning, we have upwards of 80 people and they're desperate to share about boundaries and they're desperate to learn about boundaries. And what a privilege, what a privilege it is to be a part of that. So tomorrow, uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m., Friday morning, I'm going to be starting a, um, an ACA meeting that will use creative writing. And that was one of the other workshops that we did um, at the convention. Um, and that's something that's very near and dear to my heart using creative writing. Um, if any of you were here the last time I shared, you know that I shared a few of my creative pieces, which you could look at as poems or you could look at as just little creative snippets. Um, I've been doing that work um, also for probably five years with people in all different 12-step programs. But um, after the World Convention, I just, I just felt the call to open it up as a regular ACA meeting. So we'll be introducing it pretty much the way you introduced your meeting um, this evening. And uh, we'll work to a prompt and people will get to share. And the most important thing about those meetings is there's no competition. We share using the voice of the inner loving parent. And so actually it is a reparenting meeting as well as a creative writing meeting. We look for what we relate to. We look for what's wonderful in other people's writing. We look for where we see recovery in their writing and we don't criticize. It's not a workshop in the way the world would view a writing workshop. So anyway, I'm grateful for that. If anybody's interested, I could certainly drop information in, um, in the chat and we're gonna hold it all gently and just see what happens. And it may be time for that to take 
take flight and it may not. So we'll see. Um, so that's kind of a little thumbnail of how I got here. And you can see that, um, you can see by what I'm saying that I have a tendency to get excited about things and say yes. And that is one of my laundry list traits. And I need to remember that sometimes the right answer is let me think about it. <laughs> and sometimes the right answer is pause. And sometimes the right answer is check my motivations, right? Check my motivations. Why do I want to do this? And I'm fairly certain for the creative writing uh, ACA meeting that my motivation is to share something that, I, that has brought great joy and healing and inspiration to me with others. Um, but I can get off the right track very easily. So I look at all my fellow travelers as people who can really help me stay on the right track. So I'm gonna talk about um, my, my ACA story as I've been asked to do. And uh, I grew up with an alcoholic uh, parent, that was my father. And um, as far as I know, he was probably an alcoholic from his college days. Um, in looking at the family tree, he had a grandfather who'd been an alcoholic. Um, he probably had a couple of um, uh, siblings uh, who became alcoholics, but um, my dad never found recovery and, and he died uh, actually behind a bar, um, drunk when he was 50. So um, he lived a very sad life. And for me, the life was um, a roller coaster because when he was good, he was smart and funny and antic and he did characters and accents and he'd jump on horses and gallop around the pasture. I grew up in a dairy farm. Um, and he would entertain the kids, um, but we never knew. We never knew which dad we'd get. And when he was mean, he was drunk and he was mean, he was really mean. Um, and said terrible things to all of us. He was violent. He he was a uh, he, he, you know, break furniture and, and so forth. Um, to my memory, I don't think he ever hit us kids. But I'm also very aware that my memory is spotty, and so I, you know, I say more will be revealed. I will know what I what I need to know when I need to know it. Um, but I do know that even from um, my younger years, I was ashamed of my father. Uh, I was always on edge because I didn't know what he was gonna do next. And I now know that I had a terrible fear of abandonment. As much a fear of abandonment by my mother as by my father, because imagine the fear of being left with him um, if she decided to pick up and leave. And my mother it did eventually move with uh, myself and my two brothers she eventually left my father, but not till I was 13. And by the time I was 13, you know, the damage had been done. And I was, I was all, I was my laundry list traits just waiting to flourish and flourish they did. So I wanted to um, share with you a piece that I wrote. Don't think I read it the last time I, um, I spoke here, but it really encapsulates that feeling of both loneliness and fear um, of my dad. So it's called walking home. It's four o'clock. The school bus chugs off, leaving me at the end of the lane to our farm. It's called Princisville Road. It's lined with dirt, brambles, 
scent of wild things, ink berries, bittersweet, their poison packed in blood red berries bursting from their jackets. Cornflowers, huckleberries, honeysuckle, tiny drops of nectar shimmering on the stem, pull them through the slender shaft and suck it dry. My mother isn't home. She's gone to work and left me to return to an empty house. At least, I hope it's empty. I hope my father won't be there. His rage rolled up like newspaper, a weapon that's supposed to leave no mark. You know, and some of you may have heard the, the uh, adage that you can beat somebody with a rolled up newspaper and it won't leave a mark. I don't know whether that's true or not true, but what I'm attempting to do in this piece is to show myself that it was my father's words that were the most that were the most destructive. And they were just as destructive as, you know, a rolled up piece of newspaper that um, that you could use to uh, to hit somebody with. So, um, as I say, my father never did find recovery. Um, uh, I am grateful that I remained in relationship with him um, up, up until his death. He wrote me a letter. I was in college in California and he wrote me a letter in February of 1972 where he told me that he'd given up drinking. Um, and he was dead three months later. So that pretty much sums it up, you know, the hopes and then the hopes being dashed or crashed. Um, in many respects, that was worse than if he'd been the same way every single day. I couldn't count on, I just couldn't count on anything. Um, things got worse. <laughs> Believe it or not, things got worse. So when I was 10, a Jehovah's Witness came down our lane to our farmhouse, knocked on our door, and my mother started a Bible study and ended up converting to being coming at Jehovah's Witness. And where she went, we kids went to. And my father hated the witnesses, hated them, screamed and hollered and yelled, called them the Jehovah's. Um, I never really asked my mother why she did what she did why she converted to being a Jehovah's Witness after having been a Presbyterian for years. Um, I think now looking back on it, it had something to do with a sense of family, a sense of community, a sense of people that would love her uh, even if she had a, a, a violent husband. In fact, the witnesses are, are, are known in a way for loving the ones who are persecuted. And so persecution is kind of a badge of honor. In any event, my mother did convert and um, she was baptized uh, at, in a huge baptism at a convention at Yankee Stadium when I was 10 and, um, and she was 30. She hadn't when she was 20. And then two years after that, I was baptized as well. And uh, so for, for seven years, I, uh, I became a Jehovah's Witness, um, knocking on doors and um, attempting to convert people through fear through the fear of a, of a war of Armageddon that would kill them all unless they converted to our religion. So imagine sending a kid out into a neighborhood to knock on doors and scare people to death. Uh, that was my job. So I wrote a piece um, about my conversion. And in this piece, I first of all talk about having been a Presbyterian, which I was until I was 10. Um, and then the shock of uh, turning into something completely different. And then 
the questions, the questions that started coming into my mind. So it's called Converted. I recall when I was nine, the smell of wooden floorboards in the ratty candy shop, the taste of chuckles, crunch of sugar crust against the tongue, sticky gel caught in my teeth, my bribe for sitting through the Reverend Kimball's sermon. I remember Sunday school, the golden rule, and making dolls for little girls who didn't have a home. I recall when I turned 10, leather briefcases knocking at my door, religion of salvation for the few, baptized in a tub of water in the basement of the Kingdom Hall. I remember Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays, scriptures, strictures, adding up the hours in the tenements of Trenton, selling Bible tracts, accounting for the cash. I remember questioning why God would kill the babies of Egyptians just because the Pharaoh held the Jews. And why did God drown all the animals in Noah's flood? except the lucky two. I remember thinking I was better off in Sunday school where God loved all the little ones. And again, you know, as with my father, that, that sense of being, uh, uh, of not knowing what's gonna happen next or hearing one thing, but actually sensing another, I think the same thing was very much true of being a part of this religion. That is to say, the religion said God, God's way is love but it didn't feel like love to me. It didn't feel anything like love to me. And so I'm, my, my own instincts, my own sense of reality, I was constantly questioning. And you can hear in this, in this piece that you know, I'm starting to question. And my ultimate question was, well, wait a minute. So if God says man can have only one wife in the Bible, but in the Old Testament, King David had many wives and, you know, many of the, many of the Jews had more than one wife. Um, I don't get it. Like, why was that okay with God? And the answer that I got back was these poor guys, they were doing the best they could to come up with answers. The answer they gave me was, um, well, because God needed to populate the earth. So clever little 14 year old that I was, I said, well, wait a minute. Didn't God make Adam and, and Eve? Yeah, well, couldn't he have made 10,000 atoms and 10,000 eaves? Yeah, you can see that my days were numbered. Uh, my days were definitely numbered. Um, and, uh, and so um, when I was 17, I went off to Katie Gibbs Secretarial School in New York City. Um, in those days, um, Jehovah's Witnesses did not um, allow children to uh, go to college because we weren't supposed to have a career. We were only supposed to have a job. Our career was to be a minister. And so the best I could do was um, secretarial school, but it got me out of my home. It got me into New York. And although I had a list of um, Jehovah's Witness congregations to go to that my mother gave me, I never called and I never went. And oddly enough, my mother never called me out on it. I think she knew that I was leaving um, but it was important to her to have me be a part of her family. And I now see after some years of recovery that I was very badly enmeshed with my mother. Um, although 
my mother died at the age of 50 from breast cancer. And in many respects, I'm glad that I was able to come home and work in New York City and go home on the weekends and be there with her. Um, I, I really adored my mother. Um, and I didn't see until I came into ACA that, um, that I was the subject of religious abuse. I really didn't see it. I mean, I knew that I didn't like giving up my birthday and Christmas and all that, but I didn't really see how cruel it is to ask a little kid to be responsible for saving souls. That's not right. And when I think about how I treated my own daughters and how my, my eldest daughter is now 36 and I have two little granddaughters, one six and one two. When, when I think of how she's raising them, like that she would never do anything like that. It just, it would never ever happen. It would never cross her mind to put that kind of responsibility on a little kid. So today I see that as, as I do see that as religious abuse. Um, and I, you know, and I hold it lightly. Um, but one of the things that coming into program allowed me to do this allowed me to feel a few feelings because I will tell you when I first came into the rooms, I had three feelings, happy, mad, sad. That was it. Do not tell me about abandoned. Do not tell me about lonely. Um, I, I was in denial about most of my feelings. And one of the gifts of program is to be able to do a deep dive into feelings. And one of the gifts of being able to create a writing for me has been to discover what I actually feel. So I wanted to um, I wanted to read you a piece. I rarely read this piece, but it's about my mother's wallet. Um, I kept her wallet, this little red leather wallet. And this piece is called What's Inside. What's inside my mother's wallet? Worn red leather. I've moved it from drawer to drawer these 40 years since she's been dead. As if one day she'd show up at my door, headed for the grocery store, needing the coupons tucked inside. As if she'd need my brother's photo in his goofy glasses back when he had hair. As if she craved a whiff of leather smell before plastic took its place. She'd gauge its bright red heft back when 20 bucks could see one through a week. I fought and tossed. 10 wallets in these 40 years. Photos of my kids replaced by licenses, credit cards, 20 bucks now grown to 200. Still, someday I may need what's in this wallet. Someday I may open it, shake it inside out, hoping for a secret left inside, a coupon for a double bonus life. I hope you can see, you can hear the grief in that. You know, my mother's life was was cut short at the age of 50. And um, her funeral was on my 30th birthday. And that uh, was an enormous, enormous loss for me. One that I was not able to feel for many, many years, many years. Um, and the sadness that my mother never got to see her grandchildren is uh, is palpable for me. So it is a gift, it is a gift to be able to write about that. and to be grateful that my mother worked a deal with Jehovah's Witnesses so I wouldn't get kicked out. Because if you get kicked out, you get shunned. And if you get shunned, your family can't speak to you. And that is what has happened to my niece, Brooke, my brother, Peter, and his wife, Debbie. Well, they do speak to her occasionally. They're not ever supposed to speak to her. Um, because she had the 
courage to resign as a Jehovah's Witness over its treatment of women as second-class citizens, and also their them and us attitude towards salvation. So I'm proud of Brooke, um, but she was baptized when she was 17, so she didn't have the um, the loophole that I did. I was baptized when I was 12, and so um, they they said back in the day if I if I agreed that I'd only been baptized to please my mother, then they'd undo my baptism, essentially annul it, and uh, and that's what happened. And so she was able to preserve our relationship. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And I want to read you a piece too about my dad. I told you that I was able to stay in relationship with him. You know, back in the day, we thought alcoholism was a moral failing. And we thought he was just a weak man. We thought if you loved us, you'd stop. Today, I know that's not true. Today, I know that alcoholism and love have nothing to do with each other, nothing. But I didn't know that then. And so I'm actually grateful that I didn't uh, judge him to his face. Maybe I judged him behind his back, but I didn't judge him to his face. I have a photograph of me and my dad, and uh, it was taken outside the rescue mission because that's where he was living in the day. It was after the divorce, and he was not really able to hold a job. And uh, I looked at that photograph, and I thought, wow, we're fading. We're fading in this photograph. So the, the piece is called Restore Us. A faded snapshot, my lips a blur, long blonde curls cascade to frizzies like wings of hummingbirds. Was I smiling, standing with them near my Mustang in the parking lot of the rescue mission? What choice but to smile? Dance the one, two, three, built into muscle memory. His hat, a shapeless cotton, top squared, narrow brim above his awkward grin, his two short pants from the grab bag. I'm in a shiny purple maxi coat, fashion next to no fashion. Me next to not me. Bring us back. The father who was not father, standing with a daughter who's fading, who for that moment was willing to pretend, arms entwined in an inner city parking lot, that he might someday take her arm and walk into another picture, do what fathers are supposed to do. So I didn't marry until both my parents were dead. I never got walked down the aisle. And uh, that's, uh, you know, that's a reference to that longing, right? That longing that for a dad and, and some compassion. I hope some compassion, um, a, 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 a desire to be restored, right? A desire to, to see him restored, even if it's only after death, to, um, to the man he hoped to be. When he left the Navy, his separation papers said he wanted to be a journalist. And he never became a journalist. He never even tried. But um, but I'd like to think that in my being a writer, I, in some ways, I'm I'm fulfilling that that longing that he had. At least I hope so. So um, I do want to talk a little bit about what's in my toolbox, and um, I'm hoping that we can have a conversation about that. Um, 
you know, after, after I'm done, but I wanted to tell you about amends. <laughs> I wanted to tell you about amends. Um, and I wanted to tell you the story about one of my amends that went really, really bad. Um, oh dear, that was my um, sponsee who said, sorry for not calling you. Okay, um, it's called, what about Bob? What about Bob? Mm. It's the answer to my secret security question. What is your favorite movie? Bill Murray, stalking his shrink on vacation, worming his way into the family dinner table. His fish named Gil, worn in a baggy necklace along for the trip. What happens to Gil once he's off the bus in hot pursuit of Dr. Merton? Funny Bob, hapless Bob, not my secret Bob, the Bob I used, abused. The only man I knew was only good enough to get me through. And I let him love me anyway. I've loved this film for 30 years, chuckled, cackled, laughed at all the funny parts. Now I see. There is no funny part. So I took a trip to California and I um, attempted, I, I did make amends to this person and I told him exactly what this piece says that, you know, I, I was sorry that I dropped him flat when uh, the man that I married flew out to California and married me and I flew back east and goodbye. And uh, I said, as I was asked by my sponsor, this is actually my AA sponsor uh, to do, I was asked to say, is there anything I can do to make things right? So I said that line and he said, yes, be in better touch. I thought, okay, that, that sounds reasonable. Uh, okay, I'll be in better touch. So I get back home and he starts sending me emails and uh, he had given me a book that he'd written about his recently deceased wife's trip to India. And I read the book because I thought that was the right thing to do and told him that I appreciated the book and so forth. And then I get an email from him that says, you know what I'd really like? I'd really like you to come out here to California and spend four days with me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about being better touch told you that I was going to come stay with you for four days? So I, um, so I basically, you know, said, uh, you misinterpreted, or maybe you didn't, but I have no intentions of, um, of coming to see you. And I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not okay with me. So it just reminds me that, you know, I'm responsible for my side of the street. I'm responsible to clear up mis whatever has gone on with um, with people that I've been in relationship with. Um, but I can't predict what's going to go on on their side of the street. And, um, and so I have to be, you know, I have to be honest and say, no, I, I just, I can't be in communication with you anymore. So stay in better touch doesn't, doesn't seem to work. And, um, yeah, so I, I do, um, I do have fellow travelers that I speak to every week. Um, two of them, well, actually three of them. And um, we do an inner child check-in, talk about how our inner child is feeling and what our inner child or children need from us. And that's really, really helpful for me. Um, one of my fellow travelers asks me how I feel. And I told you that, you know, I didn't have a very good language for feelings. So now I get to pause and think about that and think about how I actually do feel 
and say so. And also know that my feelings won't kill me, right? I mean, that was my fears. My fear was if I ever allowed myself to be angry, I'd never stop being angry. I would just blow up. Um, and so I've learned, you know, by talking to my fellow travelers and by being honest, telling the truth, um, I've learned so much in, um, in program. I don't have a sponsor. I've never had a sponsor. Um, and I did sit on a, a committee that worked on writing a new book that will be coming out with this year called Connections. And it's about all the different ways that we can get support from others in recovery. And uh, there are some people who believe very strongly in having a sponsor. I am a sponsor actually for some folks, um, but there are also people who believe just as strongly that the fellow traveler method working with someone who has the same level of experience, strength and hope works better for them sharing back and forth. And um, I think it's wonderful that in program, we're not one size fits all and we can listen to our intuition and we can see what works for us. And we could also have the right to change our mind we have a new Bill of Rights coming out. And as many of you know, if we've seen a Bill of Rights, uh, I have the right to change my mind. I have the right to change my mind. I never knew that. I never knew that. So I wanna end um, the pieces that I wanted to share with you. Um, I wanted to, to read one about discovering our authentic self because um, that's, um, not page 25. Because for me, anyway, that has been a really big gift in, in program is to just figure out who, who, you know, who am I? And um, let's see if I can find it here. But basically, I will say that my that, that most of what I have discovered about myself is that um, I have much more intuition than I thought I had. I thought I had no intuition, actually. Um, and I've discovered that I do have intuition. Um, I've discovered that um, that I really love sharing writing. And I've been a writing teacher, but it's um, it's really a, a gift to share writing with um, with people in recovery. And I just, uh, you know, I, I, I love that. Um, so actually, um, yeah, I don't see that. I don't see that piece jumping out at me. So, uh, and I see that time is, is running down. So let me see what else I wanted to share with you tonight. Um, service, just wanna say a couple words about service. I, I do a fair amount of service and it's really important for me to check my motivations. It's really, really important for me um, because I can get tied up in what I call the projects, living in the projects, right? And thinking that my self-worth will come from um, doing good deeds. And that, you know, that came from a combination of, um, of being a child who was trying to earn her, her, uh, her respect and the love of her parents. Fortunately for me, I was a good student. So I was able to do the, the student gig. But I also recognized that when there are things that I wasn't good at, like sports, I just quit. I quit. It didn't even occur to me that I could practice and get better, and get better at something. Um, and so I recognize today that um, like we were saying earlier in the meeting with technology, um, I don't get to quit anymore. I have to keep going. I have to ask for help. Um, you know, the, it doesn't work anymore to say, well, I'm not good at that, so I'm just gonna quit. But with service in particular, check my motivations and then balance. So if I'm not mindful of my program, 
if I'm not working my program first before I'm doing service, then I have to seriously rebalance and consider. And uh, that's been really important for me. And it's one of the reasons why I love all my service partners um, doing an inner child check-in. You know, how is your inner child today with, with what you're doing, with what's on your plate? Do you need to take something off your plate? And know that I'm not, because I'm one of those super responsible people who want to, you know, make sure that everything's done according to my standards. No, really bad idea. Really bad idea. But I learned it as a kid. And so I would say that of the, there's so many gifts of the ACA program. But one of the ones that I'm most grateful for is that it takes away the shame of the laundry list traits. I realized that I didn't do anything wrong. I have nothing to be ashamed of. Everybody who was raised the way I was raised turned out pretty much the way I turned out. And now I have an opportunity to heal and change and grow. And it's that shame, because I told you, you know, we, we viewed my dad as being morally defective, as an alcoholic. And there's something about being relieved of shame that is just so wonderful, you know? It, and it is the higher power or the greater power at work that, you know, that helps me reparent my inner child and say to her, you didn't make a mistake. You didn't do anything wrong. Or if you did make a mistake, we're going to fix it. And it's not going to be, you, you are not a mistake. And that mistake is not going to color your life. And I'm not going to leave. I'm not leaving. I am not leaving. There's nothing you could do or say that's going to make me leave. And that's what I wanted to hear as a child. And yet I was always afraid that, you know, my dad was going to fall down drunk and die, or my mom was going to get sick of him and leave. And both of those are that fundamental, right, fear of abandonment. And what goes along with that is a lack of trust, right? If you can't trust your caregivers, it's very hard to learn how to trust a higher power, very hard. And so that's, again, one of my growing edges that I have to work on every day is to recognize I don't have all the answers and to live in mystery, to just accept that there's mystery, um, things I will never know. And that's okay. That has to be okay with me, right? Because I want to live a life where I can look at the places I've had a spiritual experience and visit them regularly and revisit that joy and reparent my inner child, which I often do in the car. I talk to her a lot in the, in the car when she's upset about something. But the tools of our program are really magical and they work. They work. They absolutely work. And I, I have three programs. I'm in AA. I'm in Al-Anon. And I'm in ACA, but I will tell you, and I've told my AA sponsor this too, ACA is my primary program. And that's not to say that I wouldn't be in trouble if I picked up a drink, I would. But my primary program is ACA. And I can't imagine it not being my primary program. It's where I learned to live. It's where I learned to be comfortable with myself. So I'm really happy to be with all of you this evening. And thank you so much for listening. And if you're interested in working with creative writing, the meeting starts tomorrow, Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. All are welcome.